Amen. Jesus is our reward. Um, I think we often confuse that um, if, if we follow Christ, um, we get to go to heaven. But uh, I think as much more than that is we, we get to go and, and be with God. And we get to get to go and, and, and see him face to face. And, and that, brothers and sisters, is our reward. That we would be able to go and spend forever and eternity with the creator of the universe. That is something that we should look forward to. That's something that we live every moment of every day thinking about. That we get to, that we get God. We get to be with him. And that's exciting to me. And I, I hope it is for you as well. This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 4 and a little bit of 5 this morning. So turn with me and your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 4. We'll be starting in verse 32. And as I mentioned in our introduction or uh, announcements this morning, uh, having being able to celebrate Independence Day is, is something that we are very lucky to do. I mean, we were, God placed us here in the United States, you know, for a particular reason, and we get to celebrate the freedoms that we have um, through all the things that we've gone through. So uh, today marks the 245th anniversary of our Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. Here's some facts that I read about on the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission site. It says, even though we celebrate on July 4th, the Continental Congress actually uh, declared independence on July 2nd of 1776. The original celebration uh, that took place, that, that actually happened on July 8th because that was when it was announced, like, hey, we're, we're independent now. And so everybody, once they got the news, they celebrated being independent from Britain actually on July 8th of 1776 when the declaration was first made public. Um, people really didn't celebrate that much on that day, um, but it was known and going through and, and what we saw in um, the 1800s, the Declaration of Independence, it was actually printed copies that they had and they distributed. And so then the, the July 4th day started to become more prominent as they got to read firsthand the Declaration of Independence that they had in their hands. And they started to celebrate then on the 4th. And then in 1870, it was declared a national holiday where, like we know of today, is where the day that we celebrate. And while the U.S. Constitution makes no uh, reference to God, the Declaration of Independence, however, has three references to a God or a creator. Uh, it says the, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And also the, the laws of nature and of nature's God is another piece taken from that declaration. Thomas Jefferson, who was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence, he was not a Christian, but what he did was take clues from a gentleman named Henry de Bracton, who actually popularized this type of terminology of talking about the creator and the, the natural order and things of the nature. I'm not sure if Henry was a Christian or not, but it's interesting that the, the terms that they use and using the word creator um, interchangeably with God. And I think that, like we see today, that leaves some room, right? So for, for other people, we might not be talking about the same creator, the same God. And I think that is something important that we should be looking at as Christians. And so as 
we look and think about this as um, they, they came and, and uh, dec- had the, their independence from Britain. And what I was taught in school when we grew up is about the U.S. being this melting pot, right? If you've gone to um, the D.C. And, and gone to Ellis Island and things of the nature, you see all the history about people coming over and, and ships and, and what they did is just taking all kinds of people into this new nation um, in order to, uh, for us to be unified, for us to take different people from different places around the world and we get the different cultures. Uh, that's why we love about Chicago. I, you know, I love to eat and, and I'm a kind of a foodie, but we have so many different cultures of food, even right here in Chicago and the rest of the world. And, and in some extent that does unify us. But it seems like as time goes on and on, even though we have these commonalities as Americans, it seems like we just can't agree on anything. And if, if, if you had a, your head in the sand, maybe you missed the past several years of all the, the minutia, all the, the things that we can find to argue about as a country. And, and either you're in, in this camp or you're in that camp, there's, it seems like there's no in-between anymore. But that's not only true for the United States. It's also true, unfortunately, about the church. It seems like we we try to find every minor detail to argue about, but we don't get the basics right. Like I I gave you the the challenge to go and tell somebody the good news of the gospel. Some of you did and some of you didn't. But uh, as a whole, what we do here in the church is that we want to argue about um, doctrine and the different functionality things, things that are not foundational to the gospel. We want to argue about those things instead of doing what is plain and clear from God's word. We want to argue about, well, uh, is this an old earth or a new earth creationism? Like, or, or are we Calvinistic or other and I can go on and on about these different sects that we have, but fundamentally, we're not doing a good job of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we are more concerned about what camp we're in than seeing the kingdom of heaven come to life before our eyes. I hope that we can point you back to that era now. So as we as First Baptist Bolingbrook, as uh, we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, thrive as a body of believers and serve Bolingbrook in the greater community, I hope as we do that, we can get back to our foundation of the main thing being the main thing, and that is seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I should stop right there. I mean, that's, that's what we're... That is the foundational thing that we are here to do. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Here God's Word reads, Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with the great power of the apostles, uh, were giving them their, giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lambs or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what they were sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Here, again, we're going through the book of Acts. We're seeing the foundational uh, components set up of God's church. Uh, uh, we see the, the change in uh, the disciples. Uh, they were, they were kind of weak, if I were going to be plain. But then we, we get to the book of Acts, and we get to the, the moment of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit descends on them, and then they, it's like a switch is turned on. Then all of a sudden they become courageous. All of a sudden they, they understand and see what the, a lot of things that they learned from Jesus when he walked the earth. And now they're boldly proclaiming God's word to people who need to hear it. They are totally different people after this encounter, after they had seen uh, Jesus going and he he's ascends to the right hand of the Father after his resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit descends on them and they start um, this, this work of the ministry. And what's remarkable is that we don't, we're not the ones that create unity. Uh, like everything else, God is the one that establishes is his unity. He's the one that uh, makes it happen and makes it so. Uh, we, we might maintain it, but we're not the ones who create it. God is at work in, in redeeming his people and the gospel brings people together. I've said this before, uh, all of you here, uh, I'm, I'm blessed to know you. I'm blessed to work in the ministry uh, side by side with you. But apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm not sure that we would ever cross paths. Maybe we would have. Uh, maybe we uh, would get to know each other, uh, meet at the, the Starbucks or, or something like that, and we would uh, be intertwined and have some intimate relationships where we know about each other's families and things of that nature. But it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ that we are brought together. This is the commonality that we all have, this bond that we have as, as brothers and sisters. God is at work redeeming his people and bringing us together through the gospel. And we, we talked a few weeks ago about the inclusion of all people from every nation under heaven, every tribe and every tongue. And here in the U.S., far too often, the view is that, that we are God's chosen people, that, that the United States is God's chosen people. That simply just is not the case. The people from diverse lands and cultures believed in the risen Christ, and they were unified by that notion and that ideal. So we need to remember that unity doesn't mean uniformity. There's no cookie-cutter Christians. And we don't have to agree on uh, every fine detail or minutia, especially things that are outside of the gospel, outside of the Bible and Scripture. We don't necessarily have to agree on all those things, but we can't be agreeable. We don't need to uh, fire up and, and point fingers and yell at each other, even if it's in all caps on social media. We don't need to do all those things. We're all diverse individuals united in our belief about the gospel. This is something we have to get right. It's something we have to understand and continue to have in our minds. It's amazing how we see in our text this morning how this unity is expressed they're unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ, unified by his blood. And we get to see how this is expressed. The unity that we see begins with the common gospel identity and a display of this, this, this radical love, this radical sharing because of their unification. 
They share each other's burdens. They share each other's joys. They, they share their, their time. They share their possessions. If we look at the text and ask the question, who's, who's doing the sharing? And it's everyone. Everyone here is sharing. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. God wants his people to be generous people. A few months ago, I talked about tithing and what that is and what that looks like. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have this, this, this uh, idea of, of 10%, but as we read through, it's, it's definitely more than 10% that we are to tithe. But when we get to the New Testament, it's very clear that we are to be generous people. We are to be good stewards of what God has given to us and, and then uh, uh, take that and, and, and to help support the people that, that need it to go towards the gospel mission, go towards people who are in need, uh, those people who are oppressed. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is not a prosperity type gospel. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be uh, have a, a lot of lot of money. You're going to have big houses, big cars, or anything like that. Uh, he's talking about spirituality. Is spiritually rich. As we as we go through and, and understand what's going, on, you might have some material possessions. Uh, you might have uh, some income that comes in that helps, but fundamentally, as Paul talks about being content through through all things, and he he was uh, had a lavish house that you know we see we're going to see here in Acts where he goes and stays, and the Church of Philippi goes, and he he goes from there to being in prison. But he's like, uh, it's all good. I got Christ. I'm content in where I am right now because what I have through Jesus Christ and what he's already done for me. This is something that we should be thinking about as we go through the generosity and the blessing that we can be to others as we continue on. Here we see this, this community understood just uh, as we should understand, as well as uh, they, they understand that everything that we have, everything that we can hope for is a gift from God. It belongs to him. So as we see a brother and sister in need, we should uh, be there to do what we can to help those in need. Much like we do with our benevolence funds that the people gave to the apostles and then distributed to those in need. So uh, as a side note, as you uh, give uh, to, to our church, you can always go above and beyond that regular offering and designate some funds to our benevolence funds. We, we do frequently get calls from people in the community uh, that are having a hard time. And they, they call, and sometimes they just call for prayer. Sometimes they, they need help with a bill. They need help for the next meal. And so we're able to use those funds from benevolence in order to serve those folks in the community. So as you continue from week to week and you are giving your offering, also think about the benevolence that we can be uh, for the people in our community. We can go and help them. Um, you know, we've, we've done things from buy, buy groceries. Uh, we've helped to pay rent. Uh, payment on cars, uh, the next next meal, next food. Uh, we've done a myriad of things because of the, the generosity of those of you here in the room. So I would love to see that continue so that we can be the beacon of life for our community. 
So we have this picture in the text of the community who has this community comes together. They, they come together lovingly and they, they come to take care of each other. And as Luke sets the stage with this, he introduces a, a couple of abuses. Now, everything, this is what I love about the Bible, because it, it, if I were the one to write this, I would have taken out the bad stuff. I mean, I want to make everything look pretty good, right? That, that's what we often see in, in, in the movies and different books is the retelling of a lot of things. We, we kind of massage it to make it a little better than it actually was. But Luke comes in and he wants to show us how some people were abusing, the, uh, how they were abusing the fellowship through deception and causes a crack in this unity. Let's read on um, to chapter 5, verse 1. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And remember, if everybody was looking at things that they had, they want to help each other in need, none of this belongs to us. And so you know what? I don't need all this stuff. They, they need more than I do. I don't need this property. It is going to waste. It's going to the wayside. I want to help and support them. So I'm going to sell what I have, and I'm going to give it to them. So here we have Ananias and Sapphira. They're following suit. They sold a piece of land. And in verse 2, it says, With his wife's knowledge, Ananias, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after the interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land or so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. What in the world is happening here? This is amazing and I can't imagine, I mean, I would be quaking in my boots if I had witnessed these things that happened. We have Ananias and Sapphira as examples of hypocrisy this, unfortunately, we see this same or similar type of hypocrisy in the church today. They actually faked their spirituality in order to impress the other people. They wanted to fit in and puff themselves up as if they were doing good like the, the other people they were rubbing shoulders with. They weren't required to sell any of those things. There was no mandate to go and say, hey, in order for you to come in and worship, you need to sell all your stuff and you, so we can give it to the needy. There was no requirement of this. Everybody else was doing it voluntarily. But no, they, 
Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted to puff themselves up. They wanted to pretend that they were something that they were not. They pretended to give more money than they actually gave. They kept back or put aside for themselves. They did this in a secret and dishonest way. Peter plainly says, uh, in verse 3, it says, Peter says, uh, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Peter is saying, look, look, dude, nobody asked you to do this. If you had just come and uh, said, hey, you know what, uh, here's half, here's three-fourths, here's two, two cents, but I'm keeping this back for myself. No harm, no foul. You weren't mandated to do any of this stuff. That's all they had to do. But instead, as Peter puts it, like, hey, you are uh, lying to the Holy Spirit when you do this. This couple lied about charity. It's like you know, lying on your taxes. Satan was the instigator, though, of this. They were, he was the instigator of what this customer, th- th- these couple did, and, and it was Satan that filled our hearts, and much in the same way that the Holy Spirit filled the, ho- the hearts of those in the community. And we have this uh, example of Barnabas, the, the encourager that we see earlier. And he, he says um, in verse 37, he sold his field that belonged to him and, and brought the money and laid it down at the apostles' feet. The problem here that we have is uh, based on the context. It just, it just seems like Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, they just claimed they were dedicating more money than what they actually did. So the sin here is this lie and claiming more than what they did. And I don't, it doesn't even make sense. But, I mean, like we see in the world, trying to make sense of why people do the things that they do just is a fruitless effort. I don't know why they would have done something like this. And it would have turned out much differently, but they, they received their payment. As a side note, I want you to notice this. In verse 3, Peter tells Ananias that he lies to the Holy Spirit. Then in the very next breath, he says that Ananias lied um, to not to man, but to God. And I want to point this out to you because it's helpful for us to see um, and, and understand that it substantiates our doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, when, when people talk about the Trinity, uh, you know, Father, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, um, it's clues like this that we get that helps to formulate that doctrine and understanding. So as we read through Scripture, we continue to see that these three persons of the Godhead are co- equated one to another. So as a, just a side note, it, it, <laughs> Peter, he just slips it in. He just slips it in, and, and, but they understood at the time, and they knew what it was. And so just as a side point again, so we can understand the doctrine of the Trinity and see it in place as Peter is having this discussion. Um, going back to verse 5, Ananias heard these words, and he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And I'm wondering if these guys are just standing out to the side and just waiting for something to happen. And was this their job? Was this their role to like, oh, well, so somebody else dropped dead. Just wrap them up and throw them in, throw them in, in, the, in, the, 
in the grave, judgment came from God very swiftly. There was no tolerance policy here in this case when they go and lie to the Holy Spirit. They go and lie to God himself. They just dropped dead and they were dragged off. And I'm picturing this in my head like <laughs> the people just dragging them by their feet. They just, they just fall out. And not, not only just for, for Ananias, and then three hours later, Sapphira comes. And they're like, uh-oh, I hope she tell the truth. I don't, I don't want to have to bury somebody else. And sure enough, she comes and she, boom, she drops dead as well. Uh, God uh, came swiftly with his judgment. And as much as we like to minimize this offense, we need to understand how serious this sin is in our lives, and it will not be tolerated. We, we have this notion, our idea of white lies, or, or things that are really minor. We might be at work, and, well, you know, I'm going to take a couple things home as I can use them there. They, you know, they, they got, they're, they're good. They're just going to order more. It's not a big deal. We think that's not a great offense. But here's what Jesus says about uh, how we should look at sin in Matthew 5 and 29. Jesus himself says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. He goes on to say, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is how seriously we should be thinking about sin in our lives. Not that we should mutilate ourselves, but that's how we should think about it. That we should be cutting sin out of our lives. I don't care what it is. We need to stop it and cut it out ruthlessly so that we can follow him. There's, there's no, no white lies or no, no in the middle gray area. Right, your conscience should be alarming you as to what you're doing and why you're doing it, and we should immediately act and cut it out. They were afraid, the people that saw all this, they were witnesses and saw, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to be lying to the Holy Spirit. I, I, I got that note. I, you don't need to have any more examples. I don't want to be there and be the example for anybody else either. So people around, they were afraid uh, about this, this seriousness of, and the hypocrisy of the sin in the church. And they got to see firsthand the consequences. When we say um, that we'll die, and we also see this in the garden. You know, the, the, the serpent tells Eve, like, oh, you won't really die. I mean, really? But sure enough, as we go through, we get to see these, this develop. And, and, and why they, while they didn't die physically at the moment, Spiritually, man, they, they had a tough road. And it's passed on from generation to generation to generation as we go through. 1 Corinthians 11 and 30 says, That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, but we judged ourselves truly. We would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 1 John 5 and 16 says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading, a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and, and God will give him life. And to those who commit sin that do, do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. 
the supernatural work at here that we see with the Holy Spirit is evident to the people. They realized that they hadn't been taking God's word seriously. And I want us to hear this today because I don't believe fundamentally that we take God's word seriously. When we read about this, we should be on our knees asking God for mercy. We should be asking him to help us to be more like Barnabas and not like Ananias and Sapphira. Let us learn from the example, the the wrong and bad example that, that we see from them so that we can go in the other direction. When we read about this, uh, we should uh, be, be just uh, groveling and begging for his forgiveness and also give thanks that God has continuous patience for us. We must have a healthy fear of the Lord because God will not be mocked. We must live in repentance. When you're aware that, uh, we, when we're aware of our personal sin, um, you, you repent of that and ask God for forgiveness instead of uh, dwelling in it and, and dealing with our hypocritical hearts. I'm asking you all to seek the Lord in, in repentance here today. Brothers and sisters, I'm asking you today to turn away while there is still time. And Peter gave Sapphira some time. Uh, she hadn't heard about what happened to her husband, but she gave, or Peter gave her a moment to rethink what they had already agreed upon. She could have made a different decision while she had time. I want you to turn away from sin, brothers and sisters, and I want you to follow Christ. And this is the key not only for us individually, but for the church as well, that we will come together unified as a body of Christ. Unity that among God's people, we see that is critical for uh, revealing God's glory. And if we look at John 17, this is exactly what Jesus prays for. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. That's our goal. That's our aim for us here at First Baptist Bowenbrook, that together we would be as one, just as the Father and Son are one. I pray that fervently for our church, that we will love one another, be there for one another when one is up, the, the other one will be up with them, and one is down, we will be down on our knees with them. That we will lift each other up in prayer. That we would satisfy each other's needs. That we would uh, uh, have joy and celebration when others have joy and celebrate. That we would grieve when others grieve. That we would... And when people say, well, where do you know them from? Why, why are you so close? We see that door open up. It gives us an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are humbled here today to uh, be in your presence. Father, help soak these words into 
not only our minds, but also our hearts so that we may, um, whatever we do might be righteous in your sight. Help us to lean on uh, what we have through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and give us the boldness in our scripture to go and proclaim the good news to those who need to hear it. Father, I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.